Hello, hello. I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your therapists next door. Join us as we demystify therapy and destigmatize mental health. Every episode, we interview a healthcare professional. It's sometimes serious, sometimes sad, most times ridiculous. Special thanks as usual to one of our top contributing patrons today, Daniela. Thank Woo-hoo! you as always for your support. Woo indeed. Therapist Next Door podcast is 100% listener funded and commits that we will never work with advertisers. We don't believe that it is our business or our job to tell you what kind of mattress to buy or encourage you to give money to an exploitative therapy service. As we believe that labor should be paid, (laughs) we ask that listeners who are able to contribute, contribute what they can so that we can continue to be a platform to clinicians who further destigmatize mental health and demystify therapy. Every episode, we thank one of our top contributing patrons. Thank you again, Daniela. Learn more about perks and way to support Joanna, who is me, and Sarah, who is Sarah, at patreon.com slash tndpodcast. That's patreon.com slash tndpodcast. For easy access, visit our Instagram at tndpod and find the link in our bio. Uh, let's get on to our show. This week, we welcome Rebecca Sadati, who works as a private practice owner and therapist. Welcome, everyone, to Therapist Next Door, the podcast that shows you the human side of your friendly and neighborhood healthcare worker. We do this by interviewing someone in a helping profession, asking questions that you want the answers to, I promise, and answering questions you didn't know you had, because I know what you're thinking. Uh, yeah. I'm Joanna, a board-certified music therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a white, straight, cisgendered female, and my pronouns are she, hers, and I recently went to the American Girl Doll store in um, California. There's one there that I went to. That is really nice. nice. Is, is that yeah. the only American Girl door? store (laughs) uh no no there's definitely i think there's there's a big one in new york city i was very Mm -hmm. into american girl dolls as a child as a girl um who is american and i i don't i think we did go to the store but the store was like a little bit past my time um so we were waiting in line for santa no this was after santa and uh we were like let's just go in and look around um and it's pretty cool. They have like a whole cafe in there that you can bring your dolls to and you can like sit the doll next to you in a chair, like a special doll chair that's attached to the table. It's really cool. Uh, yeah. That sounds really nice. Yeah. That, there's an episode of Bob's Burgers where they go into a doll <laughs> store and they have they go to a restaurant. Anyway, that sounds really cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, and I'm Sarah, an LPC from Pennsylvania, transplant from South Jersey. I'm a cishet white woman and my pronouns are she, her. And I got enough puzzle activities for Christmas presents to last me through April. Okay. Maybe you haven't gotten all of the puzzles that you would have received. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. Okay, good. So I'm good through a- the mi- mid-April. I got a 3,000 piece puzzle. I got a Lego set that makes Starry Night by... That's amazing. And I got this. Oh, Joanna, these are so neat. I think you'd love it. These little like the you put them on your bookshelf and you build like little scenes. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm I'm super pumped for those who remember last year I did a two thousand piece puzzle with Nicktoons. This one. That was a very cool puzzle. It was a cool puzzle. This one is uh zodiac signs, which makes me feel very 
I've matured a lot in the past year. So. <laughs> I'm starting. I am starting a puzzle today, like tonight. That's a bunch of um, skeins of yarn. So what's a skein? Just, a skein is um, it's like a a general term for like a thing of yarn, but it's also like uh like a twisty twisty tie thing. You okay, like, so- it looks like a. Like maybe if you were to twist two braids of bread together. Oh. Okay, so so a spool of thread is a, as as a skein to yarn. Is that correct? Yeah. So yeah, there's there's cakes and balls and all sorts of different uh oh things and where you pull and Hanks. Hanks is another one. Well, I'm excited to see the you know ongoing. The ongoing yes. progress of the skein of skeins of yarn and then the finished product <laughs> of the skeins of yarn. Yeah, I'm um, remembering a puzzle I did and I couldn't the the picture I took wasn't sending to you, so I had to email the picture. Oh yeah. I needed you to see. <laughs> and then I puzzle. did get it by text. So I had it in three places. <laughs> it's like Sarah really needs to see this puzzle. I do. And I did. And I I, I don't know. I, I appreciate getting it in all ways that I can get it. Yeah. Puzzles are great. They are. They're, they're yeah. Everybody do a puzzle. I'm trying to watch less TV. And I'm trying to just be on my phone less, as per usual. And puzzles are the answer. Readings the answer. Oh, I joined my library. Also, Ooh, my library. Wow. They have adult coloring classes <laughs> in the middle of the day, so it's only. What does that mean? What is what does that entail? They have, like coloring books out and colored pencils. There wasn't too much, but when I was there, it was right before Christmas, and they were like, "Oh, there's still time to enter the adult." snowman coloring contest so entered i did not win um i i I, the deadline of when the winner would be announced by the mayor came and went (laughs) that's so awesome (laughs) i did not win um but it was really it was a very very cute experience um i got to make i got to make a friend and i got to take out a library book which i haven't done since our time at drexel um since 10 years by the way 10 years we are in 2023 so 10 years since we graduated started oh, no, okay. started okay. God, not yet christ but anyway there's that so that's how <sighs> i've been a that's how i've been civically involved in my hometown that's at exciting. least it, yeah it's pretty cool thank you i'm i'm pretty cool i that's really cool i'm i'm i don't, I don't know i just like i i want to know more about this experience that you had it's it does sound a little magical yeah yeah I took a, I'll share a picture of the snowman. I, I submitted like, you know, full disclosure. I just drew me on the snowman. I just drew like my hair and a cardigan and jeans. <laughs> I really like that. Yeah. So I'll share a picture of that, of that snowman. It. Yeah. I'm excited to be a member of the library. Yeah. That's so and cool. you know that you can renew your library books online. Now. <laughs> it's really nice. Amazing. Everybody in every, all of our listeners are nodding like, yeah. Maybe not. How are your floors? Oh, they're pretty clean. Yeah. Okay. I remember. And they're clean. Yeah. That's good. I think my floors are clean too. I think I think we are our housekeeping is complete. Yeah, my table is clean because I want to do puzzles on it. That's what I was gonna say. The other good good thing about doing puzzles is that it keeps your kitchen table clean. So fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Because I can't do puzzles on the floor because of baby and dog. So yeah. Yeah, I'm learning that I can't do puzzles on the floor because of (laughs) because of cats. And yeah I'm, I'm stubborn that way so all right cool well uh stay tuned after the break for our history lesson 
And now it's time for our lesson. Lesson is compiled facts describing history and or current events, good or bad, or in between, in order to give context for the field our guest works in. Joanna, we have one source for today. Whoa. It is an article entitled Exposures Therapy via goodtherapy.org. No content warnings today. So listen at your leisure. Yay. All right, Joanna, first we're going to talk about the history of exposure therapy. Exposure therapy originated from the work of behaviorists like Ivan Pavlov and John Watson in the early 1900s. Its roots trace back to principles of Pavlov's classical conditioning. Yep. Probably the most famous example of classical conditioning is Pavlov's dog experiment, in which he methodically trained a dog to salivate at the sound of a bell. In 1924, behaviorist Mary Cover Jones shifted the field closer to exposure therapy with her studies on counter conditioning or the process of changing an unwanted, unlearned, or excuse me, unwanted learned response to a more desirable learned response. Cover Jones used comfort food. Okay. Cover Jones used food and pleasurable experiences to gradually erase a little boy's fear of rabbits. Years later, in 1958, behaviorist Joseph Wolpe developed systematic desensitization, a technique in which relaxation training, anxiety hierarchy, or listening to anxiety-producing triggers from most, from most to least, and exposure are used to reduce one's sensitivity to situations that a person dreads. Later in the 70s, Stanley Rackman developed exposure and response prevention while working with people experiencing obsessions and compulsions. It, it makes me it makes my heart hurt that this is just in the 70s that people who are living with the pain of OCD are getting yes. getting this help. Um, in this method, people were encouraged to conjure up obsessive thoughts oof, and then remain and then refrain from performing anxiety reducing compulsions or behaviors. Oof. Wow. Over the last 30 years, exposure therapy has continued to expand in both exposure and response prevention, or ERP, and systematic desensitization are still used today. Yahoo! Let's uh, talk about how exposure therapy works. When people experience anxiety due to a fear, phobia, or traumatic memory, they often avoid anything that reminds them of it. This avoidance provides temporary relief, but ultimately maintains the fear and pattern of avoidance. In some cases, the avoidance can actually make things worse and give more power to the feared entity. Exposure therapy is designed to reduce the irrational feelings a person has assigned to an object or situation by safely exposing him or her to various aspects of that fear. For example, while working with someone who has a fear of spiders, also known as arachnophobia, an exposure therapist might first ask the person to picture a spider in his or her mind. This might lead to several sessions in which the therapist asks the person to imagine more intense scenes with the spider, all while teaching coping skills and providing support. Once the anxiety response is reduced, the therapist may pro progress to real-life exposure. In this type of exposure, the therapist might start by placing a contained spider at the far end of the room and lead up to placing the spider in the person's hand. And there are a few different types of exposure. One is imaginal exposure. Uh, in this type of exposure, a person in therapy is asked to mentally confront the fear or situation by picturing it in their mind. For example, a person with agoraphobia, which is a fear of crowded places, might imagine standing in a crowded mall. In vivo exposure is a type of exposure where a person is exposed to real life objects and scenarios. 
For example, a person with a fear of flying might go to the airport and watch a plane take off. And then there's virtual reality exposure. This type of exposure combines elements of both imaginal and in vivo exposure so that a person is placed in situations that appear real but are actually fabricated. For example, someone who has a fear of heights, acrophobia, might participate in a virtual simulation of climbing down a fire escape. I'm so excited to hear more about yes. this. I'm, I'm very excited to hear. And so uh, we'll be back right back right after the break. So we'll be back. Uh, stay tuned when? <laughs> after the break as we talk to our guests for today. Welcome back. Rebecca Sadati is a therapist and owner of Mind by Design Counseling in New Jersey. She is a total homebody. So her practice is all virtual and her clients get to meet her chunky cats and crazy dog. She specializes in treating OCD, panic, and phobias and has the privilege to lean into her nerdiness by using virtual reality therapy. She has OCD and did VRT for herself. And once she saw how amazing the results were, she had to dive into it as a specialty. Welcome, Rebecca. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited. Yeah. So what are your pet's names first, just so we can talk about that first? Let's yeah, the important stuff. We're yes. Gonna, um, so I have Pickles, the cat. I have Ollie, the cat. And then I have Lucifer, the dog. Oh, yeah. okay. Really nice, gentle name. Her name is Lucy, but we call her Lucifer because she is just the devil. I love her, but that's man. amazing. And also, I'm sorry. Thank you. <laughs> Those are great name choices. Like, like all of them sound very wholesome. And as a uh, pet parent to a chunky cat, yeah, I mean it's 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 different than just having a. It's, it's different than having these non-chunky cats because they they are performers. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I and I think that people gravitate towards them more to give them pets. So yeah, they're they're like hamish. So yeah. Oh, I that- love hams. <laughs> Rebecca, can you tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, um, I've been in private practice a little less than a year. I was working out of a group practice and um, then COVID hit. And so when that happened and I was doing, you know, mainly anxiety work, um, I was like, oh, we're gonna have to get really creative with uh, how we're gonna help people in these exposures, because usually I'm with them and we do things and it's very interactive. And um, it was, it kind of, it, it really, with the VR component, just, it came out of necessity. So it was really cool. My clients were open to it. And I was learning just, you know, at the same time I was trying to provide it, but they were really cool with it. You know, they were like, listen, there's, it's all good. You know, there's going to be some hiccups. Uh, and, and there, there were a few, but it really did, um, kind of come naturally. And then I didn't know how long I would really be using it for, but I did it for myself. And then I was like, Oh yeah, we're gonna, we're invested. Um, and, and that was it. So, yeah. And so I, I'm now in my own practice. Um, so I can really specialize, um, I've been part of a couple pilot programs for um, VRT, for like gaming, for social anxiety, for 
not, you know, the hardcore exposure therapy, but more for the interactive component. Um, it's just cool. It's, it's such a different way to approach mental health and, um, anybody can, anybody with a smartphone can access it. So I'm like, okay, this is good. Now it's accessible. It's reliable. It's evidence-based. Cool. That's for us. That is so cool. So how does it work exactly? So there's a few different platforms and there, there are VR videos online. So I have purchased just like, um, different videos from uh, like Vimeo that are VR compatible. If I have certain things that a client really needs, if it's like very specific, but there are different platforms that are designed specifically for VR for mental health. And then you can go through the categories of the challenges that somebody's facing. Um, They have some for chronic pain, eating disorders, substance abuse. I mean, the list just goes on. It's, it's really awesome. And it's, you know, still developing. And it's really cool to see um, how it's developing. But basically, if a client calls and they say, yeah, I want to, I'm ready, I want to do this. And uh, I feel like I can uh, handle the exposure. I send them a VR headset to their house, they download an app, they pop it in, and we're good to go. That's so cool. So the that your phone goes into the headset. Yep. Yep. The headset is, it's, right off Amazon. So I just send them whatever, you know, is going to ship within two days. And then, you know, I kind of, they go through a little bit of a tutorial. I send them information prior to, we go over like safety things and needs, but because VR is not so foreign to anybody, um, that component is pretty easy. And then But before we ever get into exposure therapy, there's lots of steps prior to, you know, ethically and to make sure that somebody's in a a ready space and that it's appropriate. But once we're there, I mean, it really is just, just, we just move, move forward. That's incredible. I'm, I'm so, I'm so excited every time I hear a uh, therapeutic orientation adapting to virtual therapy. I, I, I'm an EMDR therapist myself and being able to use Uh, bilateral stimulation tools that clients can just have on their computer screen and watch that they can just Mm -hmm. download. It's incredible. I'd love to hear a little more about what happens before the exposure itself. I feel like media feeds us an idea that you jump right into a therapist's office and you are holding spiders and also TV. Yeah. So media gives us this really, it per usual gives us this really poor representation. So could you talk about the methodology a little bit? Absolutely. Um, Really important. With exposure therapy in general, there are a lot of things that as therapists, we ethically and clinically need to be mindful of. We have to make sure that somebody's issue or challenge that they're coming and telling us about is actually a phobia um, or presenting as like OCD. And it's not something else like trauma, um, like some uh, other, maybe a some form of a cognitive function. So we have to be very mindful of that because I actually, I have had clients who, who think that what they're experiencing is like a phobia because they're having a, a ton of anxiety in certain situations. And it really may be like a trauma response or something like that. Um, there are cultural differences. There are um, just so many factors that come into play. So when we're doing that initial assessment, 
though we always want to, we hear the client, we want to acknowledge that they're saying, I have this issue. We also have to assess the, the root of that issue. And so, and I think the media has done great job at making exposure therapy look really wild. I don't know if you guys ever saw a clockwork orange. Oh my God. I was like traumatized, which probably. Unfortunately, yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. I have not seen it. So good. I, I can only so. just nod. Mm-hmm. And not just for the exposure therapy, but also for every other part of it. Right. It is <laughs> horrific. And I was way too young. I definitely shouldn't have saw it. And I'm pretty sure it has somewhat led me to where I am today as an exposure therapist because um, it was so messed up. But that idea of somebody has to be forced through um, an experience that is so uncomfortable so that they got comfortable is just not true. It should be an empowering, uh, confidence-boosting experience. That same feeling like that, at the end of it, you're like, I did it. Not like, oh my God, that was horrible. Let's try again. It should. It really shouldn't feel that way. So it, uh, if anything, I hope that people know it. It though it could be uncomfortable and it can be scared because you're facing something that is a challenge. Through it should be that sense of I got somebody by my side and I'm coming out of this and I'm feeling like I really accomplished something even though I was scared or uncomfortable, right? Very different, not not forced through a terrible experience. Yeah, I can't imagine that like making even more trauma and like that's just like what I experience when I see the thing that I'm afraid of. Like totally, totally. The re-traumatizing a client, um, I mean, that, that is part of the importance of knowing that your therapist has training to do that because there is, there's a possibility and there's lots of therapists that are exposure therapists and, and talk about this part of it too, of make sure you vet your therapist so that, you know, they, they aren't going to do more harm and that they can handle this. And a good therapist knows when they can't, if they're not sure. And they can say like, oh, let's get some other eyes on this. I'm not totally sure, you know? Yeah, that was going to be a question I, I asked you like later on before we like really dove in. But I just like in my clinical experience, like seeing, I, seeing clients and like having it be asked for that like exposure therapy isn't something that every therapist is trained in. For sure. For sure. And some of the therapists that I get referrals from, what I'll do, and this is kind of the the privilege of not being with insurance either, it's like a blessing and a curse, is I'll just kind of co-treat a client so that it's this focused treatment, but maybe if they're doing some cognitive processing or trauma therapy, now they've got those supports because we're human. Like we don't just have a phobia. Like we have a phobia and we probably (laughs) have some other stuff going on. And I don't want to disregard that and be like, well, sorry to hear this, but aren't we focused on exposure therapy? You know, so sometimes that team approach too is good. And and I hope to kind of let other therapists know too, we can co-treat. You're not going to lose your client. Yeah. Work there, you know, there's some clear bounds to what the approach is and what it's not, you know, and it's not going to be a lot of therapeutic uh, processing in that way either. So 
Yeah, I love this. I love this idea of normalizing having, you know, multiple clinicians if your if your problems are not um or I'm sorry, if like the symptoms you're showing up with are you know, heightening each other and maybe not, maybe not having much to do with each other. And like to pull back to this clockwork orange reference, cause it's all I'm thinking about now <laughs> is like remembering that in that movie, that was a criminal sentence that he had to go through exposure therapy. So also this idea that you're not being punished, that exposure therapy does not have to feel like almost this like masochistic experience that you're being forced to have and that you are being made to have it. And, and then with that idea of having maybe like one or two clinicians on your side, on your treatment, like in your treatment team, actually offering you support together. And again, not in a punishing way, not because you're being forced to, but in, in a way that you get to choose and you get to just have a lot of people in your team. Yeah, definitely. And there is, there's a dark, side to exposure therapy there are plenty and still to this day of facilities that try to use exposure therapy to change a person who doesn't want to be changed and first off they're dumb because that doesn't work somebody has to want it so now um for it never works and it is just traumatizing and horrific and should never be used in that, in that way. But it is, there are facilities uh, in the United States that do that. And we have to, you know, we take them down on the weekends. We can dismantle those uh, big old corporations that do these terrible things, but Mm -hmm. your everyday therapist is here to help and wants to, they want what you want, you know, not to uh, tell you what they think you should be or do ever. And that should be a red flag to any client. Yeah. And thankfully, state by state, those facilities are becoming illegal, but they should be made illegal on a federal level. Um, Absolutely. And I, and I think that many fields of practice, because exposure therapy is so effective, that's why, I mean, oftentimes things that are very effective can be weaponized just like medical mm-hmm. care. So another important piece to recognize. So how, did, how does that feel as an exposure therapist kind of having to, you know, not just offer treatment to people, but potentially have to reteach people, reorient them into what exposure therapy actually is? So as a, as a therapist, it, it's hard. I would, I would say it's hard to know that that happens. And personally, it's heartbreaking. Um, and I have had clients come to try to change something about themselves that they think they should and it's heartbreaking you know it mm-hmm. and it, it really I'm, I'm thinking of one client in particular and I just talked to him on Friday he still wants to do this exposure therapy to be like less of himself you know so now we're doing therapy we're we're doing therapy and you always want to ignore like support a client and, and their wishes and have a client focused, um, and, and, and fueled, uh, session, but you also challenge clients too, with where, where that change desire for change is coming from. And if it's coming from shame or coming from these other maybe external factors, it's not, it's not really lifting them. And so yeah, it's, it, it's a day to find kind of like honoring, always honoring what the client wants, but also trying to bring a perspective in of, of what the client wants and what the client can have. Yeah. I think everybody that enters into therapy, there is some type of healing from our culture that they need to go through that you're, you're identifying really, really beautifully there. 
Yeah, I'm reflecting on what I thought of thought of exposure therapy before I became a clinician. And I was so afraid that mm-hmm. people would make me like be around spiders. Cause I, you know, I just like, I don't prefer insects. So like, it's not anything I, I feel like I need to work on, but I was so worried that like, if I entered therapy, it would come out and then I would have to like touch a spider. And I was like, it doesn't really affect my life at all. I just don't prefer it. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine it's hard battling those preconceived notions about that type of therapy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, before exposure therapy ever happens, there's a lot of conversation about, you can say yes and then no, and then yes again, Mm -hmm. it can change moment to moment and that's okay. And we're going to listen to whatever it is that feels right. And at any time, if there's something you don't want to talk about, or if I think something is, worth talking about and you don't, we don't talk about it until you do think it is, right? And really, really starting off on that foot of empowerment, not only because that's what every client deserves, but that's gonna be a big component of treatment is that my client feels like they can control what happens around them, right? And so if they're coming in feeling like I'm already forced, they're gonna make me do this or this or that, we have to put a kibosh on it real quick that this Mm -hmm. is like, they're, they're in the driver's seat 100%. Yeah. I think it's important for therapists to remember too. Like I say often, like, you don't have to tell me if you're not, if you don't feel like it. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's so much, there's so much, tr- uh, well, obviously, but there's so much trust that can be built by just letting people, giving them the option, empowering them to, you know, work through their own ideas about consent. And, and you're giving them a gift that lasts a lifetime too. Like being reminded that someone in, SMI position of power in your life, you can still say no to, and there doesn't have to be apologies. And if there are, that's okay too. But it is a skill you can carry forever, and it's a it's a protection you can carry forever. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between a fear and a phobia, and how it clinically presents, and then you know how you would how you would go about uncovering that uh, in therapy? Yeah, absolutely. So a fear and a phobia are different in how they impact somebody's emotional state, how they impact the way somebody thinks and behaves. Um, And it takes up a lot more time than just when the distressing thing is present. So somebody who has a phobia will be in that fear state or thinking of that fear I don't want to call it fear. Let's, let's just call it the stressor, even when it's not there. Whereas if we have a fear, it usually just means when I'm in that situation or in around that, say it's a spider, then I have that response. So fear, we have healthy fear. Like we should kind of be afraid of some things so that we yeah. feel them, right. We don't want to desensitize too much where we're just like, Oh, everything's safe. Um, and that's good, right. We want to have that fear response and then be able to acknowledge it and make it choice about whatever it is, like put the spider outside or kill it. I don't know, whatever. Um, a phobia would be thinking about spiders, not being able to really, uh, interact with their environment absent from that thought. Right. Mm. It really tends to just disrupt lots of areas where fear both can still be treated with exposure therapy, because if we fear something, that it interferes with our daily functioning, like say the fear of um, 
uh, driving, right? That becomes so interruptive in our day that yeah. we really do have to now look at that and treat it similarly. But a phobic, phobic type of response would be when it's not present and we're still thinking about it. it. Yep. Thank you. So I'm thinking about, I'm not afraid of the dark right now. Right. Cause the sun, the sun is out and the lights are on in my room and I can't, I can't imagine feeling like uncomfortable. So I'm just afraid of that. Is that, is that like a, okay. Explanation for fear because it's like, it's, it's not dark here right now. So I can't really be afraid of it. Is that right? That's right. And I guess a question I would ask is how often do you think about or prepare for when it is dark and does that inter interfere with the time throughout your day? Perfect question. I don't think about it until it's dark. And then I am always like, man, I should have prepared. It's <laughs> like pretty, like, I truly don't think about preparing until like, man, I should have had my phone on so I could have my light. So, so that, so there it's a fear because I'm not thinking about like, okay, you know, at the time of this recording, it's 1 PM it's winter. So I only have a couple hours till it gets dark. So I don't need to, but I'm not thinking about it until then. Yeah, I, I get it. I like it. That's a great explanation. I'm Can I add another personal example? <laughs> um, I have a phobic anxiety disorder. Like when you mentioned a fear of driving, I thought of like driving car wrecks. And now like I'm thinking of a car wreck, me being a car wreck. And now like, like literally I can feel, you know, like a body sensation. Mm -hmm. So that would tend to be more of a phobia. Like I'm not like presently in that place. Right. I'm just kind of thinking about it. Right. So you're, you're just, you're having a normal fear response but it's more intense yeah. than like when you say car wreck to me, I don't have like a, a significantly high response. It's sad. Right. And I might associate feelings with it, maybe my own experiences, but my body doesn't have that response. And so somebody with an anxiety disorder, and that's also why I talk about like OCD in the brain. Yeah. Sometimes I just feel like OCD is a symptom. The brain is the disordered mm. you know, area. Because if you have an anxiety disorder, you're more prone to have an anxiety response to lots of things that could look like, oh, well, then they have a phobia or they have this and that. And that's not true, right? If we can just say, how do we manage and regulate anxiety? Now we don't have to like nitpick at all the things we're anxious about. We just look at it like this kind of umbrella. Yeah. Right? So yeah. I, we're in session. I would be like, let's, let's let's not label it. Let's not label yeah. it as phobia and, and put all that energy there. Um, unless we, until if it comes to a point that we really need to, but maybe we've got to talk about that anxiety response that mm -hmm. happens, right. And, and that might be, you know, and the same for you, Sarah, with the, with the nighttime, it might first just not call it anything, not call it a phobia or anything like that and just say what's happening. You know, what, what is, what, your body what happens in your mind right and that is those steps before exposure therapy that ne neither of these situations might require it at all you know we want to take the path of least resistance and it might just be talking you know and putting behavioral action in place instead of a whole exposure vr thing thank you so much for that and thank you yeah for Sorry, we made you work a little bit. Yeah, for that. sorry. I, no, but Here's that personal application is so, that's so important. And, and I do think that this is a wonderful place for us to pause. So we will be back next week with Rebecca Sadati. Stay tuned. 
Hey, listeners, as always, a deep thanks to you for listening. I'm so excited to see where this interview goes. So stay tuned for part two coming to you very soon. If you would like early access to full interviews, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash TND podcast. Take a look at the show notes for important links. And uh, as always, Sarah, we are your your therapist therapist next next door. door. (laughs) Bye.